Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, June 8th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Merck is suing the federal government over a law that would allow Medicare to negotiate certain drug prices, calling the policy, quote, tantamount to extortion. STAT Washington correspondent Rachel Kors joins us to explain. We'll also discuss the highlights of the year's biggest cancer research conference and look ahead to what could be a watershed moment in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. But first, a word from our sponsor. What does operational inefficiency look like in clinical trials? For sponsors, it means lagging patient recruitment and no way to see enrollment barriers. At research sites, it looks like manual paperwork jamming the enrollment process. One study team's mission is to accelerate the development of new and life-saving therapies by bringing clinical workflows online. This enables sites, sponsors, and stakeholders to work together on a common cloud-based platform, Study Team. The result? Efficient workflows, increased enrollment, visibility into enrollment barriers, and one clear path to faster therapeutic development. Learn more at onestudyteam.com slash stat. That's O-N-E studyteam.com slash stat. So let's kick off the podcast discussion with uh, wildfires, Canadian wildfires that are uh, invading, or at least the smoke invading the Northeast. Meg, you're you're down there uh, in the New York metropolitan area. How are you doing with the smoke? Not great. It's it's crazy. Like on Wednesday of this week, I so we're here, you know, in Hudson Yards in the CNN big buildings, and just like looking out the window, I thought the shades were pulled down because it was such a weird color. Like it, it turned like yellowish orange. You guys have probably seen the photos. Like it looks like Mars. Like it is so nuts. And when you go outside, I even noticed this on Tuesday when I left work, you know, it smells like a bonfire. And then it just became obvious on Wednesday. And, you know, I started reporting on this for CNN and, you know, went back to a lot of the folks who I talked to during COVID, you know, Joseph Allen at Harvard School of Public Health, Lindsay Marr, whose work I followed closely on masks to try to understand what should we be doing about air quality right now. And the the recommendations are, you know, N95s, KN95s outside. Um, Inside, use a HEPA filter with with an air cleaner. Um, So, you know, it's just been kind of funny to come back to those experts. Um, But it's really scary. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about how, like, oh, this is suddenly affecting New York. This has been affecting the Pacific Northwest for a long time, and suddenly the East Coast is waking up to it, and that's fair. But at the same time, you know, we millions of people now are experiencing this new phenomenon for us, and it portends bad things. It's really scary. Um, and so, you know, I think we recognize how big a deal this has been for folks on the West Coast. And I do think people here were paying attention to that while that was happening. I certainly was. Um, But, you know, it's really scary. And so far, you know, we haven't heard about a huge uptick in ER visits. Um, That could change over the next few days. I was talking with Marshall Burke at Stanford, actually, about this, who's done some work 
looking at the impact on emergency department visits from wildfires in California. And what they found is that, unsurprisingly, you know, during high smoke days, respiratory visits tick up, but overall visits actually tick down, and more so the higher the smoke gets because people stay inside. So people are not going to the emergency department for as many other reasons, things like car crashes, for example, because people aren't driving as much. So we'll see if that pattern starts to take shape on the East Coast, too. Are you guys feeling it up there in Boston at all, Adam? It was bad. Well, I don't want to say it was bad because it was certainly not anywhere close to as bad as as you're experiencing down there. I mean, it was we sort of had some moderate effects earlier this week, but um, by the middle of the week, it had it kind of cleared out. But you can definitely smell the smoke. So understanding this is not a meteorology podcast, if if meteorology is even the correct discipline. Um, and I, Meg, I'm not going to ask you to explain the jet stream because I don't personally understand it, wouldn't understand the explanation. But in your reporting, do, do people have a sense of how long this like semi-apocalyptic haze will remain over these like large metro areas? How long does it usually take something like this to clear out? Well, I think what's scary is that the fires are still burning in Canada. And so it's sort of dependent from what I have gleaned in all of the coverage by the actual experts on this, it's dependent on the weather patterns, like what's blowing the smoke towards us. So it does sound like it's going to go on a few more days and perhaps, you know, start to get better over the weekend. But, you know, it's scary to know that like wildfire season typically is in a couple months. And now, you know, these are this historically bad fires so early. What else are we potentially in for in the coming months? Anyway, on a happier note, <laughs> uh, <laughs> ASCO happened. <laughs> Adam, you were in Chicago where the air quality, I assume, was better, although there was a Taylor Swift concert as well. So I don't know what the confluence of all of that was. But um, what were the biggest takeaways from the, the conference? I can tell you the weather was spectacular in, in Chicago while we were there. Uh, and uh, Meg, just to let you know, I did visit the Eleven City Diner for breakfast oh. twice. Just a fantastic place to eat. Highly recommend if anyone's in Chicago. Thought of you while I was there, Meg. Um, In terms of cancer-related updates or things that I did there, yeah, I would say you know it was a pretty good conference. I think what was maybe notable about it was that there were a lot of large trials that uh, that showed survival benefits, and and obviously that's the most important uh, that's the most important finding or an outcome that you can get. In, in a cancer study, you, you want to see drugs that, that help people, that help patients live longer. And, and I think there were many of those. And probably the most noteworthy one that uh, my colleagues, Matt Herper and Angus Chen, wrote about was uh, the AstraZeneca lung cancer drug, the targeted lung cancer drug called Degriso, which uh, reduced the risk of death in a study in early stage lung cancer patients by, by just over 50%. So that was a really significant finding not only by the for the magnitude of the benefit this 50 you know 50% risk reduction in death but also in the fact that this is uh, the patient population in the study was an earlier stage lung cancer patient population and um that's you know again uh you know that 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 shows how a lot of these drugs are being moved into earlier stages of the disease uh which you know again is noteworthy um we we also had an event uh on Sunday night at, at in uh, in Chicago and uh, it was really interesting. We actually had Susan Galbraith uh, as one of the speakers. Uh, she did a, a fireside chat with Matt, and um, I just wanted to relay a funny story. We were we were standing outside in kind of in you know in the reception part when we were all sort of 
uh, eating food and drinking some wine and stuff. And Susan was there and she had this pin on her, on the lapel of her dress, um, which was like had an AZ logo and then the number five on it. And um, Matt just asked her, said, oh, that's a cool pin. What does it mean? And she told us that the five in the pin meant that it was the fifth year in a row that AstraZeneca had a plenary podium presentation at ASCO. Uh, so the fifth year in the row that they have presented like the most important or one of the most important studies at ASCO. And so they had these pins made up, which I thought was like a really cool flex uh, <laughs> on the part of AstraZeneca to be wearing this pin. And and it actually, Matt noted it in a, in a profile that, that he wrote uh, of Susan Galbraith and her, her, you know, her role in kind of leading AstraZeneca, which has really become one of the more dominant uh, pharma companies in cancer. It's been a pretty remarkable ride for AstraZeneca. Well, speaking of the stat event at ASCO, you guys also played host to Richard Pazder, who is the head of the oncology division of the FDA. And he quite notably said, um, in contrast to his boss, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf, that he quite likes the votes taken at the end of the FDA's advisory committee uh, sessions that they hold before approving new treatments. Ooh, intrigue. Yeah, and that they won't be going anywhere, at least in the oncology division, so long as he leads it, which apparently is something Califf knows, and this isn't necessarily a mark of internal strife, although it is telling, and we've talked about this before, Pazdras does seem to occupy sort of rarefied air at the FDA that maybe his colleagues do not necessarily. But using that as a tenuous segue to advisory committees and votes, we will on Friday, <laughs> well which done. could be... <laughs> which could be after you're listening to this, so this will be quite boring. Um, we will hear from another advisory committee on Lakembi, the Alzheimer's disease treatment uh, developed by ASI and partnered with Biogen, which is seeking full approval after winning an accelerated and more limited approval in January. And we saw, as is customary, the FDA briefing documents released a few days ahead of the meeting, which tend to give us a clue, if not totally telegraph how the agency feels about a given treatment. And I think, you know, Adam, I know you, you looked over them as well. This looks like the FDA is more than comfortable with approving a size medicine. They seem to endorse the uh, clinical benefits seen, albeit modest, but very real and statistically significant in the phase three study um, that we've talked about at length on this podcast that ASI presented last year. And I think maybe most importantly, or, or at least coming into it, this was the biggest outstanding concern. FDA reviewers did not seem overwhelmingly alarmed with the potential safety risks of this drug, which has led to, as, as all drugs in its class have, um, swelling of the brain that can lead to hemorrhages in, in some cases. And while most of those resolve, there were two deaths in the uh, open label extension, sort of after the randomized part of the study um, with this drug, which was the cause of some concern. It's been picked apart to a great degree. But I guess the, the takeaway from the FDA was that it was not the kind of thing that they viewed as uh, something that would stand in the way of giving this drug full approval. Of course, we'll find out how things play out with the panel on Friday, and we'll find out how things play out with the FDA um, about a month from now when they render a final decision. But at least based on what we learned this week, it seems to be a fairly undramatic process going in here, which is in stark contrast, of course, to the last Alzheimer's drug that went before this panel in the form of Aduhelm, which we do not need to dredge up right now. Yeah, I think maybe the only surprise from the FDA briefing documents, Damien, was just the fact that there really wasn't anything in there 
that, uh, you know, rung any alarm bells for us. I mean, I think we were maybe expecting to see some criticism or some maybe some significant questions about uh, safety related issues, uh, issues around, you know, um, brain bleeds and and the like. Uh, but I mean, it, those those issues have been identified, and I don't want to I don't want to downplay those concerns because I think they're real and uh, they're also somewhat addressed already in the in the drugs label. But there wasn't anything. I guess there wasn't anything new. There wasn't any. You know, there was no analysis of of either the data from the the large clinical trial or even from you know sort of post post uh, study you know open label you know uh, data uh, that is that is you know, that the, the agency or the companies have collected, there wasn't anything in there that, um, that raised any, you know, raised any significant new concerns. And so, you know, again, we're, we're recording this on Thursday and, and the panel is tomorrow on Friday. I, I expect the vote to, you know, kind of endorse or, you know, fully endorse the final approval of the Cambi and it's likely to become the first fully approved or final approved, finally approved uh, treatment for Alzheimer's. We are still years away from actually implementing a law that will allow Medicare to negotiate the prices of certain drugs, but a lawsuit filed this week is seeking to derail that legislation before it can take effect. Merck is suing the federal government over the provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that covers pricing negotiation, marking the first major legal challenge to what has been a banner legislative victory for Democrats and the Biden administration. Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors has been covering this issue, and she joins us now to talk about it. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So other than obviously just challenging whether the government can indeed negotiate the prices of certain drugs, what is Merck's core argument in this lawsuit? What do they take issue with and, and what are they targeting in terms of trying to dismantle it? Right. So this lawsuit is interesting because a lot of times when we see uh, companies or stakeholders suing the federal government, it's over like technicalities in the administrative process. But this time, Merck is just arguing that the, the law itself is unconstitutional. And there are two main arguments that they're using um, to say that, you know, this this law shouldn't go into effect. The first one is that um, they argue that um, the law violates the Fifth Amendment, which is known as the takings clause. And essentially what they're saying is that because the IRA allows Medicare to um, demand a better price from drug makers, um, and they're arguing that they're forced to take that price, that that is the same thing as the government taking their property, which is the drugs, and forcing them to sell it below a market rate, which they are saying um, means that they aren't, um, quote, like justly compensated for um, their products, which means it's unconstitutional. And they are arguing that because it's they are taking the actual like physical drugs and also essentially the patents as well, that um, it's kind of like a double whammy. Um, again, experts aren't really certain whether that you know, will hold up, but that's the argument they're making on the Fifth Amendment. And there's another one on the First Amendment where they're arguing that um, they're essentially forced to agree to these negotiated prices. And because the government has framed um, the quote unquote negotiated price as a fair price that if they sign these contracts, then they are being forced to say that the price that they're being 
that they're paying in Medicare is fair, which implies that the price that they're charging everywhere else is unfair. <laughs> so it's just um, they're saying that it violates their First Amendment rights um, to free speech. So, Rachel, how did the White House respond to Merck's lawsuit? The White House you know, took a pretty narrow reading of the Constitution and said, basically, there's nothing in the Constitution that disallows Medicare from negotiating better drug prices. And I think that's, you know, we don't usually see a lot of response from agencies or the White House, um, you know, wasn't very substantive. It's only about a paragraph. So I think we'll see more of the legal arguments laid out when those uh, briefings come in. So Merck noted in a statement along with the you know, filing the lawsuit uh, in a media statement, they said they're prepared to take this all the way up to the Supreme Court. So do experts think Merck has a chance of actually winning here? The experts that I've talked to and my colleague Ed Silverman have talked to don't really think um, that they have a good argument here. I will say on the the Fifth Amendment uh, patent issue, there this courts the Supreme Court hasn't really ruled whether the takings clause can apply to patents. So that is kind of uncharted territory. Um, So it is very possible that an issue like that could, you know, go all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, But I wanted to uh, read a quote um, by Eric Gordon, who's a professor at the University of Michigan. Also the best quote machine in the entire world, let's be (laughs) honest. (laughs) Yeah. So his take was that there are better odds that Elizabeth Holmes wins MedTech Innovator of the Year than that Merck wins its lawsuits. So that's just one person's take. You know, we'll see how (laughs) things play out. But um, that's kind of the the tone. (laughs) Yeah. So this is maybe neither here nor there, but the lawsuit is very colorfully written. Merck's attorneys say the IRA is a, quote, dystopian parody of negotiation, negotiation being in scare quotes there, that has conscripted companies to legitimize government extortion, end quote, end quote, coerces manufacturers to smile, play along, and pretend it's all part of, scare quotes, fair and voluntary exchange. Is there anything to read into in that theatricality? Like, this is a this is a lawsuit that accompanied a um, you know, press statement from Merck. This is obviously something that the company and its attorneys knew would get a lot of attention that we would be reading in detail and talking about in forums like this and writing about all over. Is is the fact that they just like put that extra mustard on the diction, does that suggest that, you know, part of the goal is a little bit to change the public narrative in addition to whatever happens in the courts? Uh, certainly, I think so. You know, they, uh, drug bankers in general have spent the last, you know, two, three years getting beat up on by Democrats. And I think they felt like their message wasn't getting across. Nobody was listening to them. Nobody believed them. And I think they certainly saw this as an opportunity where there would be a lot of coverage. So I think they, you know, went all out and as dramatic as possible. And I think it's just a symptom of this pent up frustration by the drug industry that, you know, they don't believe um, this program, you know, will benefit innovation. You know, they're complaining about R&D costs. You know, I think there's just a lot of these arguments that they um, really want to amplify with this lawsuit. And there certainly could be future lawsuits, too. I mean, Merck is one, but there are, you know, 10 drugs that could be selected um, the first time around if this goes forward. So there certainly are other opportunities for drug makers to get involved as well. So, Rachel, what are some of the potential end games here. So like what you know what what comes next in this in this lawsuit? What Merck is trying to do here is delay the selection of negotiated drugs or delay them having to sign a contract um, to agree to the no- negotiation process. So right now, the timeline that's laid out in the law 
HHS is supposed to put out their list of 10 drugs that are going to be the guinea pigs for this negotiation process by September 1st. And I think that is why Merck filed now to try to get some sort of delay of that process. And I, I want to say it's 30 days after the selection is kind of when drug makers would have to sign an agreement to kind of enter those negotiations. So I think they're trying to at least slow that process down, if not stop it entirely. Well, as you just mentioned, Rachel, you know, there may be other drug companies that jump in here. Um, we heard Biogen CEO at the BioConference suggest they may be considering a lawsuit, which I actually realized from seeing a tweet from our friend and colleague, Allison DeAngelis. Um, you know, wh- what do you expect to see from the rest of the industry? And then something I also really wanted to ask you in particular about, because you've been so insightful into what's going on with pharma, the lobbying group, should we read into Anything into the fact that, you know, it's individual companies and one individual company that's filing this lawsuit and not pharma leading the charge? Like, to me, I wondered, does that suggest pharma is kind of losing its hold as like the tip of the spear? Well, I will say that it is interesting that pharma wasn't at least a party to this lawsuit to me. Um, I think for in terms of standing, usually a plaintiff in a lawsuit has to prove like demonstrable damages to their actual company to, you know, have standing to pursue a lawsuit like this. And I think Merck, because, you know, they manufacture a drug that's kind of one of the first ones up potentially for this program, I think their argument for standing is pretty straightforward and it's less so for a trade group. Um, Not saying that pharma couldn't be a party to litigation later on, but I think there is just a lot more, um, negotiations that have to go on within the organization because, you know, uh, there are so many different companies in pharma. Each of them have different effects to their portfolios from this law that I think it just takes longer to get consensus within an organization like pharma. Whereas Merck, you know, if they feel like they want to fund it by themselves, they have standing, it's maybe in their best interest to go it alone. I wonder, you know, stepping back, Rachel, like, were you surprised to see this lawsuit at all? Oh, not at all. I (laughs) think I wrote my first story about the takings clause in like mid-August of last year, right after this passed. So we were fully expecting this and fully expecting the arguments that Merck made, too. There were not a lot of surprises here. I was surprised because I had not written about the taking clause. I had to look up the Fifth Amendment because I always think of it like I plead the fifth. I'm like, Merck's pleading the fifth? Like, what? And so I had to understand it. But I get it. And you explained it very well. Oh, thanks. Yep. I, you know, talked to a bunch of experts, did a deep dive into very nerdy congressional reports um, a while ago. And it is interesting to see how accurately they were able to predict kind of the the big issues here. And certainly we'll be tracking um, as this moves through the courts. Well, so speaking of Medicare and big issues and looming controversies, we spoke earlier in the podcast about what looks like a likely full FDA approval for Lakembi, the Alzheimer's disease treatment from ASI and Biogen. But that simply moves the focus from, or if that happens, it would simply move the focus from the FDA to CMS, the organization that controls Medicare, because all treatments like Lakembi, all amyloid targeting Alzheimer's treatments are party to a pretty strict restriction on access. And so I just wanted to check in with you, Rachel. This is something you've also been been covering very closely. Where do we stand on, you know, based on what we know right now, what will happen if and when that drug wins approval? And what's going on legislatively? It seems like a few lawmakers are kind of making noise in multiple directions about, uh, you know, frustrations with how CMS has handled this to date and maybe how it will handle it in the future. 
if Lakembi receives like full traditional approval, the plan is for coverage to expand somewhat, certainly from what it is right now. Right now, when a drug has accelerated approval, patients have to be enrolled in a clinical trial to receive the drug. And if Lakembi receives full approval, then patients will still have to go to a provider that uh, you know, collects patient data and submits it to a registry run by Medicare. But ultimately, they are certainly expecting much wider access um, to this medication if it is fully approved. And just to be clear, this plan was announced in April 2022. There are no surprises here. And I think one lawmaker who has been raising the alarm about the progress of CMS in preparing for a full, full approval is uh, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, who's you know very involved in biotech issues, and I think she's asking questions about what what is this registry like? How, who runs it? How are physicians supposed to sign up? How are patients supposed to find a provider near them that is signed up in this registry? And CMS has not answered any of those questions. So I think there are big concerns about whether they're going to be ready in a month to operationalize you know, this process to get patients access to Lakembi if it does receive full approval. Rachel, you raise a really good point about the registries. And I know that's a question that investors have been asking and analysts who cover these companies have been asking. It's like, you know, what what will these registries look like? How quickly will they be operational? Has CMS offered any timelines about about when they're going to provide more information or details about that? No, we don't have any concrete timelines. Um, I think last week they basically said that the registry will be facilitated by CMS, but we don't really have any details beyond that. And I think one of the issues that Congresswoman Eshoo raised was the, you know, administrative burden on providers. I think there are access concerns about like smaller providers in more rural areas or underserved communities and kind of their access to providers who are willing to um, jump into this process. So I think um, there are so many unanswered questions and we just don't have any clarity from CMS at this point. So the idea that this could start to be paid for by Medicare now is drawing attention once again to the price of Lakembi. And Senator Bernie Sanders came out this week uh, talking about it. What did he say, Rachel? So he suggested that HHS, because of the price of this medication, uh, needs to use one of two options to ensure that Medicare doesn't go like bankrupt um, over this drug. And I know this is a conversation we certainly had um when Agihelm, you know, was going through this process as well. So he suggested that either HHS should use what's known as margin rights to invalidate the patent of the drug if they don't, you know, agree to lower the price. And it's something that he's, you know, advocated for a long time um, that, you know, if there was any sort of public research that went into the development of these medications that, you know, NIH should be able to uh, force generic competition on the market um, if a price is, you know, unreasonable, something like that. It's never been done before. The Biden administration hasn't really shown any appetite to pursue that. Uh, but it is something that Senator Sanders has um, made a priority. He's said that, you know, he wants to see an NIH director nominee that feels the way he feels on these issues um, go through the process. So I think that'll be something that he certainly brings up during um, the confirmation process for the new NIH director. 
And the second option that he proposed was doing some sort of demonstration project through the um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation to kind of pay for this drug differently or at a lower rate um, than Medicare pays for other drugs. Again, would be unprecedented, would be incredibly aggressive. Uh, just from where I sit, I don't think that the, either of these actions are particularly likely. But Senator Sanders now is chairman of the Health Committee in the Senate and has a bully pulpit, and he is using it. And, and Rachel, just to clarify, through the Inflation Reduction Act, Medicare doesn't have the right to negotiate the price of Lecambe at this point, right? No, it would be several years after it's on the market before Medicare could get involved. At some point, it could get involved, but um, it's going to be nearly a decade, I think, before that happens. So Medicare is kind of stuck paying um, the price that um, the companies dictate right now. And I will say Senator Sanders has dragged CEOs before his committee um, for other disease areas. So certainly if this becomes uh, a bee in his bonnet, then um, we could see some further accountability measures in Congress for the price of this medication as well. Well, Rachel, thank you as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you enjoyed the mustard on our diction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. I really relished that outro. It was so great to catch up with you guys. <laughs>